All right, the children are dismissed at this time. And for the rest of us, let's open our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. Thank you for the worship this morning we've already engaged with. I think in terms of the analogy you provided, that was for the Lord. And uh, I've really enjoyed it. I actually was concerned just a moment ago that I was singing too much and my my throat might go out. So I'm I'm glad that didn't happen. And I'm glad today to be able to share with you 1 Peter chapter 4. Now, I have up on the screen, uh, the, the title for this sermon is The Element of Surprise. How many of you here say, I really like surprises? All right, so a number of people raise their hand. Now, honestly, I really think that you probably shouldn't raise your hand until you find out which surprise, right? Because there are some surprises that are fantastic. And there are some surprises that you, that you really didn't like. Uh, as you're driving and you crest a hill and there's a police officer, what a surprise. <laughs> Good surprise? Well, of course, for us, since we all obey the speed limit, it doesn't matter, of course. But I've heard that there are others who may not, and for them, that surprise would be a challenge. Not for us. Uh, You know, there are other good surprises. You know, for instance, let's say uh, the the Lions won a game. And uh, that would be a wonderful surprise. And, uh, you know, unexpected. And this this is the deal with... Surprises. What is a surprise? A surprise is something that's unexpected. Last night I had a a lot of fun with a number of friends. I was invited to a friend's 40th birthday party, and it was a... uh, It was a masquerade party. Everybody came dressed in in different ways. And it was a surprise 40th birthday party. Now, there are a number of elements of the surprise. One of the surprises was that we were celebrating a 40th birthday party for someone turning 39. That was a surprise. Uh, she, She had been confused and thought she was turning 40. And so her husband just decided to roll with it. (laughs) All right. So... And, and, you know, I'm, I'm imagining some of the young people here, like, how could you forget that? But, you know, the older you get, you, you have no clue anymore how old you are, right? In any case, that was part of the surprise. But actually, she found out that the surprise was going to happen because she was on her husband's computer doing something, and, and then she saw the invite to the party. And it, and it ruined the surprise. Though she didn't know what kind of party it was, so there was still an element of surprise. Surprise can be a fantastic thing. Surprise can be a really challenging thing. But the element of surprise is the idea that there's something you didn't expect to take place that happened. And this morning, I want to talk about three surprises that I think our passage indicates for us. We're going to read uh, chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. You're going to immediately see the first surprise, and then I'm going to suggest that there are two more within the passage. So here we are in chapter 4, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 3, but we have to know a little bit of the context in order to understand what it's saying, because it begins with respect to this, or with respect to these things, and what it's referring to is back in verse 3. It's the things Gentiles want to do, that is, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. And then he says this, with respect to these things, these sins, they are surprised. 
when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the opportunity you've given to me to open your word to your saints. I thank you for these many months we've been together and for the opportunity I've been able to see your spirit at work among your people. And I'm thrilled this, mor- this afternoon to again open your word. And I ask, I beg of you, that your spirit would be at work and that we would each consider what you would ask us to do in light of your word. These are your precious words to us. Help us to treat them as such, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. I mentioned a moment ago that I think there are three surprises in this text. The first was clear from the very beginning of the passage. They're surprised at you. But then I'm going to suggest that sometimes we are surprised at unbelievers. And then I'm going to suggest the third thing, which is that we should never be surprised at God. So let's first begin with the one that's most evident and obvious. And that is that in verse uh, number four, with respect to these sins, they are Surprised, And so the first point I want us to recognize is that our lives should be surprising. The believer's life should be something surprising. And if you've been here through the study of 1 Peter up to this point, then you've, you've gotten this a little bit already. You recognize that Peter expects that his readers who have embraced Christ would be different than the rest of the world, that they just wouldn't live like everyone else. Remember this theme of exile and foreigner, you're a stranger in a land that really isn't your land. And this refers back to chapter 4. Now, why are they surprised? It's because of all of these sinful activities. Again, last, uh, the last time we were able to work through First Peter two weeks ago, we talked about living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. And I suggested the last time we were together talking about this, that this list of vices, things that scripture forbades us from, things that we should avoid, are also the sorts of things that our world longs after. They look at a list like this and say, yeah, that's what a good life would look like. If we could engage in just those things, if we had access to indulge in the flesh that way, then we would. Now, here's the thing. Scripture provides for us the idea that when we come to faith in Christ, and perhaps you've experienced this, but when you come to faith in Christ, you can no longer live that way. The Spirit changes you definitively. And if he does that, then he makes you a foreigner, a stranger in this world. Which is why it is that unbelievers then look at our lives and they're a bit surprised. Earlier, the passage told us, or the, uh, First Peter told us, that we have been redeemed from the futile ways inherited from our forefathers. Do you know what the language of redeemed means? It means to be bought back from something, to be purchased away from. It's, it's the same language that would be referred to, a, to as, a, as a slave being redeemed, being purchased from slavery so that there would be freedom. And in this way, we have been redeemed from a futile, broken, useless way of life. Now, we would la- label it that way. That's exactly how to speak of it. 
But the world does not label it that way. The world labels it as that that's the good life. But we can't do that. We won't do that. And the world is surprised at us. What are they surprised at? Well, notice the language. And there's a reason why there's a rushing river there, if you can see that on the screen. Notice the language that he uses. He says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. Now, I've got a strong feeling that nobody here this week used the word debauchery. Somehow, I've just got that feeling. So it's not really language that we use too frequently. Nevertheless, I think we understand what it means. It's the flood of sinfulness. And the, the analogy, I think, provides for us two things. First, I want you to notice that people are rushing towards it. This is not, uh, there's a steady flow. This is not, people somewhat move in that direction. These are the things that our world runs to. And I think that that implies something about our lived experience among people who long for, rush after these things. Just recently, and, and maybe I mentioned this, so if I did, you'll have to forgive me, but, but uh, at the beginning of this last football season, I went to one of those wasteful games. You, you know the, the Michigan football games where they play against the teams that there's no possible way the other team could win, except that one year they won, but we're not going to talk about that. Uh, <clears throat> this was against Hawaii. Hawaii isn't quite known for their football team. You can know this because they're called... Uh, fighting rainbows or something like that. I mean, you know, strike fear into the hearts of your enemies. I'm telling you, this is the way to do it. And so I went to this game, but the problem was it was rained, uh, rained out. Now, it didn't completely get rained out, but for about 45 minutes prior to the game, it was supposed to start at 8, I stood outside with 100,000 of my very close friends and <clears throat> while rain was pouring down upon us. And then they finally decided we're going to open the gates. But here's the thing. They, they couldn't open the gates until the last moment uh, because they couldn't let people in when there was thunder. And then they, let, they opened the gates, but they were going to start the game in 20 minutes. 100,000 people. Did I mention that? <clears throat> Just a few gates to get in there. I mean, the trampling. It, I mean, it, it was chaos getting in there. Now, the reason I mention that is because to some degree, this is how I sort of feel like we are as believers in the midst of the world in which we live. We are individuals who are in the midst of a rushing crowd, all going the same direction, all going that way. And what are we doing? I think we're not only not going that way, but we're actually walking the other way. And that's hard. There's a sense in which our world is moving in a direction in which we cannot go, but it is a herd mentality. And I, I think we have to understand that if we're to understand our part in the world, we have to understand that our world rushes towards this, but they don't rush to it individually. They rush to it together. Uh, sociologists talk about this as group cognition. Or you probably more commonly sometimes talked about as groupthink. And if you ask sometimes yourself when you're watching the news or when, you're, when you hear the latest thing that uh, is being said, and you think, how could any sane person think that? How could anybody go that direction? 
We, in, in the history of the world, nobody's thought that way. And now our entire civilization appears to be thinking that? If you ever think that, what's happened is groupthink. And there's a whole rushing crowd going that direction. And it tends to be that we tend to follow. Actually, it's quite fascinating. I watched a YouTube video once in which uh, this group of people decided that they would, in a group, start running in a direction towards a couple of people who were standing there. And guess what those couple of people tended to do? Started to run with the crowd. Why? They had no clue. But the crowd was running that way, and that's the direction we thought we needed to go as well. And I think in many ways, this is what's happening with our world today. The world is rushing in a direction, but it's a direction we can't go. And we stand against the direction in which it goes. Now, the other thing it mentions here is they're not just rushing, but they're rushing towards something. They're rushing towards what's known as a flood of debauchery, a flood of wickedness, a flood of sinfulness. The idea here is that it's like a raging river that carries people away. And I think that this indicates a few things about sin. If you've ever seen a raging river you ought to be very concerned. It, it sometimes is less, it, it's very deceptive. You think, well, I could walk across that. But the power of it and, and the way in which it pulls you along is quite deceptive. And I tend to think that scripture elsewhere teaches, and maybe this analogy hints at this, that there's something about this raging flood that entraps people in sin. And if there's one thing I do know about sin, it's this, that sin will take you further and faster in the wrong direction than you ever anticipated. And our world is heading in that direction quickly, decidedly. And here's what's happening when we refuse to go that direction. They look at us and they say, those people are different. They're surprised that there's somebody's not going with the flood. Why not? So, the first element of this passage is that our lives should, in fact, be surprising. This is what Peter's been teaching us the whole time. But there's a second thing. The unbeliever's response is often surprising to us. Because imagine with me for a moment, what would we expect unbelievers to do? I mean, to some degree, I would think that maybe they would just say, boy, that's a little bit different, that's a little bit weird. Let them be as they are. Because aren't we in a world in which... They say, listen, listen to your own heart. Go your own direction. Unless it's the biblical direction, and then don't do that. That's about where our world is. But we somewhat expect them, particularly when we understand that, unbelie- that, that the world has the same moral code written on it that you do, on their, on their hearts. And so we might expect the world not to respond negatively to us, But notice what the passage actually says that they do do. You see it here in in verse 4. With respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery. And then notice this final line. And they malign you. They malign you. Now again, malign may not be a word that you use quite frequently. But it means to heap abuse on someone. To speak evil of them. And I think this is key. Not only to say something evil about somebody, but to do so deceptively. To say something that's a lie about people. And the passage then suggests that our world will not only respond negatively to us, 
when we refuse to go along with the crowd. But that, in fact, they'll say bad things about us. Not only will they say bad things about us, they will say false things about us. Have you never heard somebody speaking about evangelicals and thought, I've never known an evangelical like that? That seems odd description because that's not who we are. That's not any of the people at my church. And could there be some person out there somewhere who holds to that position? Yes, but that's not the normal position. Just like in any group, you can find someone who holds to some strange things. So our world will tend to, as this passage says, they will tend to speak evil of us. Now, why is this surprising to us? Because I think sometimes it is. I mean, in, in the, the passage, I think First Peter gives us a sense of why this is surprising to us. You remember if we look back at chapter 3, he said, who's going to harm you if you are zealous to do good? It's a rhetorical question. Who would want to harm you if you're zealous for doing good? And, and you think, well, nobody. And yet we live in a lived experience in which that actually takes place. Or friends, and, and notice this one in chapter 4. Friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trial. Now, by the way, did you notice the word surprised? Here he's saying that the world is surprised at us. And what he's saying to us in chapter, in, in later here in chapter 4, which we'll get to in a future sermon, is he says, don't you be surprised that you're going to go through fiery trial because of the world in which we live in. And I, I don't think this is all that surprising if we understand why it is that the world acts this way. So I'm going to suggest two reasons. Peter doesn't, doesn't get into this, but I think we can read between the lines to see why it is that our world would malign us based upon what he's already said. One of which comes from the historical background of the book of 1 Peter. If you remember a long, long time ago, when we first studied, started this study, I mentioned that Christians in the first century were being accused of all sorts of evils. Uh, people were saying things like they were incestuous. And they were saying this because everybody said that their everybody was a brother, a sister, a mother, a father. And so there was this family relationship, and people were confusing that with... Uh, problematic relations. Uh, there were other elements. They were also accused of cannibalism. And I bet you might know why. The Lord's Supper, if wrongly understood, could be considered something like cannibalism. And so there was ignorance of Christians. And I mentioned this in a previous sermon, but I think it is important. I think that there are a number of people today who misunderstand us today because they don't know any evangelical believers. Uh, the only way that they've heard anything about us is that they've heard it on the news. Or they've heard it through some source of which does not present us correctly. And what's the resolution to this? How do we fix this problem? I think the simple solution is get to know your neighbors. Get to know unbelievers. Choose to be among people who you don't know and let them know who you are in Christ. That Jesus has made a difference in your life. And I tell you, all of a sudden they say, you know, I've always heard about Christians, but I've never met one. You are fascinating me. And praise be to the Lord that that might very well open a door that leads to an opportunity for witness. 
So sometimes the reason they speak evil of us is because they really are ignorant. And if that's the case, then it's our duty to make them knowledgeable. What is a Christian? Because remember, what does Jesus say your task is? To be a light to the world. And if they're still in darkness, is that their fault? To a certain extent, I understand, yes. But to another extent, we say, we need to be out there making the light of the gospel more proclaimed than it is today. But there's a second reason. Christians are salt. Now, a long way back in our study, we talked about this, but I think it's important for us to think about again in reference to this. Why do they speak evil of us? Because one of the things Jesus said is that you are not only to be light, but you are to be salt. And there's historically been a lot of confusion as to what Jesus meant by salt. Because, of course, today, uh, what do we use salt for? We tend to use it as a flavor enhancer. But that is not what the ancient world tended to use salt for. The ancient world used salt for a pre preservation, for preservation of meat. They didn't have a refrigeration. There was no way in Israel to keep meat from decaying. The best way that they knew how was to slather it in salt. And that would slow, slow the decaying process. When Jesus says to his believers, you are the light of the world, he immediately follows it up, you are the salt of the earth. And what he means by that is that you are the preservative that God has placed within this world to slow its decay. Here's the honest truth, though. Our world doesn't want to be slowed down. It's quite comfortable with the decay. And it would actually like to accelerate that decay. And if Christians are the salt that are present, preventing it from the decay it desires, then what will they seek to do? Get rid of the salt. Coming back to the earlier illustration of me being at the Hawaii football game, imagine that I had left my uh, cell phone in my car and I decided I was going to try and go back to get it after they had opened that gate. How would people have felt about me? As they're all trying to go that way, and I'm coming this way, and guess what I'm doing as I'm coming this way? I'm slowing them all down. They might miss the first five touchdowns in the first 30 seconds. That's about what happened, by the way. <laughs> and they're not happy about it. Here's somebody that's impeding our progress. Progress here used ironically in terms of uh, what's happening in our world today. But you see, I think that the reason our world stands against us is because of, it is because of exactly who God has made us to be. And again, one of the themes of 1 Peter that he said over and over again is that if you experience difficulty and trial in your Christian life because of your Christian life, don't think there's something wrong. Think there's something right. Yea, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer some form of persecution. We, we have never in the history of this world been fully welcomed in this world because this world is not our world. So there are two surprises, I think, that we have, we have seen in this passage. There's the first surprise, which is the believer's life is and should be surprising. 
The second is that often unbelievers' responses to us are bewildering. They're surprising to us, but they shouldn't be. But the third point I want us to to see is that God's response should never be surprising. What is God's response to this situation? Notice with me here in verse 5. Because Peter has just said, listen, you saints, you no longer do what the world wants to do. You're going in the opposite direction of them. And you are now being spoken evil against. And now he speaks about what God does in light of this relationship. Verse number five. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. They will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Unbelievers, the text tells us, will give an account Of course, this language of giving an account is the language of giving an account before a judge. This is a picture of the final judgment that's going to come upon all unbelievers. And one day, Scripture has provided this picture of what is going to take place. And you can read about it in 2 Peter, but it says that the whole heavens and the earth will flood away. They'll be destroyed with an inferno. And then all that stands is the unbeliever and their, and, and, the, and their creator. They will give an account for their words. They will give account for how they treated Christians. They will give account for the fact that they rushed into the flood of sinfulness. Now, why will they give an account? I think there are a couple of things we have to understand. This, this will not be surprising by the way. I know that there is some idea out there that unbelievers will be surprised, but actually throughout the history of humanity, humankind has recognized that there is a final judgment coming. Ecclesiastes 12, God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. Psalm 98 Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. By the way, let them sing. This is the nations. Let all people sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. It is built within the heart of every man that he knows that there is a judgment coming. And they will give it account. I mentioned that mankind knows judgment is coming. Romans 1.32 tells us quite explicitly this. At the end of Romans chapter 1, <clears throat> where Paul has delineated what sinfulness looks like among the Gentiles, who knew God but decided not to honor him as God, who decided instead to fulfill their own passions and went the wrong direction. The end of that passage tells us this. Though they know, notice this, not though they suspect, Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. I want to note a few things about this passage first. They know something. They know God's righteous decree is that people who sin in this way deserve to die. 
And if you ask the question, how do they know this? The answer comes in the very next chapter. I'll, I'll turn there and then I want to come back to that passage. It says this, Gentiles, unbelievers, people who've never read the word of God, they know that the word of the law is written on their hearts. They show that the word of the law is written on their hearts. While their conscience, that internal sense of what's right and wrong and tells you what you should be doing and what you should not, also bears witness to them and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Paul's point here is, you see, there's something deeply within humanity that tells them what you are doing is wrong and it accuses them. But notice what the last line says. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The very secrets of men. As the scripture portrays this event, it says that all things will flee away and even the secret things of mankind will be exposed. Coming back to the previous passage, I want you to notice what mankind does. They know God's righteous decree that people who do such things, who, flee, who, who rush into this flood of sinfulness that they deserve to die, they know this by means of what God's placed in their heart. But they not only do these things, but did you notice what they do? They give approval to those who practice them. And you know why, don't you? You see, because if, if I give approval to you and you give approval to me, then we feel a lot better about what we're doing, don't we? Hey, listen, yeah, you can do that. Yeah, that's not a problem. Go ahead, say it back to me. Thank you. But then all of a sudden, somebody comes along and says, no, that's actually not right. And they remind them of that which they would rather forget. By the way, that's us. We're that preservative. Mankind knows that judgment is coming. And this is what the scripture indicates to us. <clears throat> they will give an account. But notice the Next thing about this judgment that's to come, it says, to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. He's ready to judge the living and the dead. And you know what this passage indicates to us? It indicates to us that Jesus is prepared for that final judgment. The scripture tells us that the father has handed all the, ju all the judgment over to the son and he is ready to do it. And if we ask the question, <clears throat> why not now? Why has he not come to, to deliver justice? Part of the answer to that is the father hasn't told him to come yet. But there's also another answer. And my friend, if you are here today and you do not know Christ, then I've been speaking of you just for the last few minutes. I've been speaking of you one day standing before the judgment seat of God. And why is it that he has not yet engaged in the judgment? He's ready. His gavel is in hand. He knows who's righteous and who's unrighteous. Why has he not done it? Scripture gives us the answer to this. In 2 Peter chapter 3. Because it, let me just set this passage up. 
Second Peter is saying that there are some who are mocking Christians. This is, this is probably 60 AD. Jesus has, has left the earth for 30 years at this point. And some have begun to mock Christians saying, you said Jesus was going to return. He hasn't returned. Apostles are dying. He hasn't come back for them. And he's not coming back for you. And this is what Peter responds. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. Don't you think that he's not come back yet because God doesn't want to fulfill his promises? That's not it. And then don't miss this. But is patient towards you. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Do you want to know why? The one who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And I think part of this, part of the reason he says he's ready is because Jesus hates injustice. And when he sees injustice upon the earth, he's ready to judge it. And yet at the same time, he is full of compassion. He is full of patience. And there is this, this tension then. And yet he has not yet brung down the gavel because his patience yet awaits repentance. You see, friend, if you have not yet trusted in Christ, then the reason that God's judgment has not come in your life today the reason he has not snuffed out the life, for already we read that those who have done such things know that they deserve to die. Why then has he not done it? Because he loves you? Because he does not want you to perish? Because he has sent his son to bear your sins in his body on the tree so that you would not have to bear them yourself? But here's the problem, because there's another passage that speaks to this same idea. And that's in Romans chapter 2. Paul speaking to those who are unbelievers. He says this, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you right now, who have not been judged, even though you know you deserve the judgment, do you right now presume on his patience to continue? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. That is, he has not judged you because he is drawing you to repentance today. Oh, but may this not be said of you, verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are right now soaring up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Do you see what, Pete, what Paul is telling us in Romans chapter 2 as he says God's judgment has not come for a reason. That is, he is being patient towards you. And you have a choice now. Will you respond in repentance? And if so... His mercy is sufficient. His mercy is more. He will forgive you. He has promised it. But if you will not, this passage, this is what it's saying. Then you are storing up for the wrath to come. Because one day the judgment will take place. And at that day, 
Scripture provides for us no hope that there would be mercy. Do you see, mercy is reserved for today. The book of Hebrews puts it this way, today. If you hear his voice, repent. If you hear it today, through the preaching of the word, then you have life, you have choice, you have an opportunity to repent. Today, if you hear his voice, respond. Now, notice the passage ends with verse number six. Because notice he's ready to judge the living and the dead. And he makes a concluding statement here. He says this, for this is why the gospel is preached even to those who are dead. Now that seems like a weird phrase. And some imagine what it means is that the gospel is preached to dead people. But I don't think that's what it means. The NIV has a different translation of this. And this is how they put it. For this reason, the gospel is preached even to those who are now dead. They add the word now, and I think that they're right in putting it there. The point is this. God is ready to judge the living. He is ready to judge all of us. And if you trusted in Christ, that judgment will be beneficial because you have the righteousness of Christ. And if you don't, then that judgment will not be beneficial because you lack the righteousness needed to beat into God's presence. But what about the dead? And this is what Peter's addressing here. He's saying, listen, this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. That is, this is why the gospel was preached to Adam and Eve. This is why the gospel was preached to Abraham. This is why the gospel was preached to, to David. This is why the gospel was preached to all the saints of the Old Testament, all the saints that came before us. Their gospel was preached to them because one day the dead will be raised. And judgment will be meted out for them. Put in the terms of Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed unto men once to die. And a lot of people think that if they got away with sin in this life, then they got away with sin. But you know the passage doesn't say it was appointed unto men just to die. It says it is appointed unto men once to die and then the judgment. Death is not an escape from judgment. Death is the very doorway to judgment. And the standard of judgment, notice this. He says, this is why the gospel preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, judged according to humanity, they may live in the spirit the way God does. And let me just say, I think what Peter's doing here is he's saying this. Listen, saints, you may feel that the whole world's against you. You may feel like the whole world thinks you're the problem. You're the guilty one. But here's the thing. The standard of judgment by which we will one day be judged is not in the flesh judgment. God will not one day say, well, what did the rest of humanity think of you? He will judge you according to his spirit, according to his word and not according to humanity. And so it is that we may be completely rejected by men. We may be looked at as immoral to the world in which we live. Despite that, we are not judged by our world. We'll stand before the judge of all humanity. So what do we do with a passage like this? I would suggest a couple of things. First, you should live surprising lives. 
This is what Peter's been drilling into us the whole time. Live a surprising life. Live a holy life. And the world will not understand it. And in fact, while you do so, be prepared to stand against the tide. Know that you are like the person who forgot their cell phone and are trying to go against the crowd. They're all pushing against us. But it is what God has called us to do, to stand against the tide, to move in the opposite direction, to put on righteousness, even as others are seeking to jump into the flood of wickedness. Third, look to the future. If you get depressed, if you get disheartened in this life, recognizing that there is so much against you, that so many people think this and that about you, do not forget that there is a final judgment coming upon all humanity, and it is not based upon the flesh. It is based upon the Spirit of God. And on that account, you are in Christ and righteous. But let me say, those three things are for believers Let me say a final thing, and I think Peter would want me to say this to you today. Flee to Christ. Do you see, if you're among these saints here today, and you do say, these are different people. They're strange. They're foreigners. I can see that. And I have been with the crowd. I have run with them in the list that's listed here. I love those things. I long for those things. Know that, know what your very heart is telling you today. Those who do such things do deserve to die. I don't say that with any sort of joy. I don't say that with any sort of superiority. Do you see, that has been me. See, when I was 20 years old, I came to Christ and I loved these things. And yet I recognized the truth that I was in my sinfulness storing up wrath for the day of wrath. And if I did not make that right, then the one who is ready to judge the living and the dead would, in fact, in righteousness, judge me. But I also understood something else. That he loved me with a love that was incomprehensible. And you say, how could that be? Well, let me just simply say, the God of all humanity took on human flesh, took your sin, if you would trust in him, and bore it in his body and raised to life to offer you this chance to spend eternity with him in joy. So what do we do with this? If you're a believer... Keep living the surprising life, even though you know you're going to stand against the uh, the tide and knowing that it might not get better in this life. But you know what the life to come looks like. And if you are not in Christ, then I plead with you, flee to Christ. He is merciful and he will welcome you. Father, I thank you for these dear saints who sit before me. I thank you for this message that you've given me to proclaim to them. And I pray, especially today, if there's one who does not know your son, that that one would feel the very weight of your judgment, would know in their very heart that the judgment is coming. 
Oh Lord, you've told us that your son is ready to judge the living and the dead. And we do look forward to the day in which you will give us a new body. You'll bring us to the new heavens and the new earth which you have prepared for us. So, Father, I pray if there's one here again who is not a part of that eternal assembly of those headed in that direction, I pray that they would repent. In Jesus' name, amen.